welcome to the Let It Matter podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Wolf. Here at Let It Matter, we seek to make space for and honor what matters to us as individuals, as communities, and as beloved children of God. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5 to cast our cares on God because God cares for us. That tells me that God cares about what we care about. In their song of the same title, the group Johnny Swim offers this invitation. If it matters, let it matter. So that's what we're going to do. I invite you to join me for the next 30 to 45 minutes as we make space for honor, celebrate, or lament, and as we name what matters. Okay, hello and welcome. I am so thankful you are joining me for this episode. I know you will be too. Today on the Let It Matter podcast, I am joined by historian and public theologian, Dr. Diana Butler Bass. Um, I want to tell you really quickly, this episode, um, I had originally planned for it to be a conversation about sort of deconstruction and um, personal faith evolutions and certainty um, and and how that's the opposite of curiosity. Um, and while we do touch on and talk about those things, because of Diana's wisdom and her experience and her um, the focus of her work being a, a historian and a public theologian and, and her um, focus on church history, it sort of became this conversation about the way um, faith in America in the, you know, in the last several decades has evolved, um, and how evangelicalism has drastically shifted, uh, particularly since the mid seventies. And, um, and she tells her own story of, um, her faith evolutions. And, and then we do talk about certainty and curiosity, but her wisdom sort of changed the direction um, that I had originally intended, and it's because um, she's just been been around longer than I have, and and um, and shared wisdom and insight into why those are not opposites. And so I just um, I just loved that that happened. I loved that she. Um, that this sort of organic way the conversation shifted from what I had originally intended was, um, you know, that that happened. So this episode is a little bit longer, um, and it's because normally I would try to cut it down to about 40 to 45 minutes for the interview, but um, she just had so much wisdom to share and so much insight into, you know, where we are now and how we got here and... um, and then personal faith evolutions, and so I, uh, I didn't cut any of it. I just am. I'm just gonna let it ride. So, before we dive in, if this podcast has been a blessing or a resource in your life, would you consider taking just a moment to pause this episode and make sure you are subscribed or following the show wherever you get your podcasts? If you're listening in Apple, if you would leave a rating and a review, oh my goodness, um, that helps so, so much for the algorithms. 
Make sure you're also following the show on Instagram at Let It Matter Podcast and on Twitter at Let It Matter Pod. All of these things are vital to the growth, the guests, and the goodness of this podcast. And your support does mean the world to me. And so I appreciate that. Let me quickly introduce Diana to you um, so you can know just the credentials she is bringing to this conversation. Diana Butler-Bass, PhD, whose pronouns are she, her, is an award-winning author, popular speaker, inspiring preacher, and one of America's most trusted commentators on religion and contemporary spirituality. She holds a doctorate in religious studies from Duke University and is the author of 11 books. Her bylines include the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN.com, the, uh, the Atlantic, USA Today, Huffington Post, Spirituality and Health, Reader's Digest, Christian Century, and Sojourners. She has commented on religion, politics, and culture in the media widely, including on CBS, CNN, PBS, NPR, CBC, Fox, Sirius XM, Time, Newsweek, Rolling Stone, and in multiple global news outlets. Diana lives in Alexandria, Virginia with her husband, her puppy, and their sometimes successful backyard garden. Now, let's get into the show. Okay, Diana Butler-Bass, thank you so much for joining me today here on the Let It Matter podcast. I'm so thrilled to have you. Well, I'm glad to be here. Um we're recording on what is turning out to be the first real day of summer on yes. the East Coast. <laughs> it looks like we're going to hit 90 degrees today. Do you know, I saw that yesterday. They were saying you guys have been in, or you're in a heat wave or sort of record highs right now. And I was just telling my mom yesterday, we're in Texas. So it's always like 95 by this time of year. And it's actually been a cooler spring. Let me knock on wood right quick. Um, <laughs> it's been a cooler spring. And so when I saw that you guys were getting it, I... I have to admit, I felt a little bit of schadenfreude. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we always know it will come. I live uh, outside of Washington, D.C., and, mm. you know, there's reasons why they call it the swamp. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so you're still far summer, enough south. <laughs> it's like, uh, I think it was Kennedy who said that um, Washington, D.C. was a city full of southern weather and northern hospitality. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> which is the worst of both worlds of course and and that's really true so we've been really lucky i can look out of where i'm uh i'm from uh my office which is a mm -hmm. place i call the cottage it's a little yeah. building in my backyard mm -hmm. um, where i write and the garden is very pretty right now because the sun has not baked it to a crisp <laughs> yet <laughs> Oh, I love that. I, um, so at this point in the episode, I have given your bio, just sort of a brief sort of rundown of your receipts, your credentials. Um, but I would love if you could start by telling us maybe a little bit more of your story in terms of being a woman, a theologian, um, a scholar, like maybe the focus of your work and how the historian part of you interacts with the, you know, the public theologian part of you. I think that the question about gender is really interesting. Um, I was born in 1959. 
So right at the sort of the end of the fifties, the last couple months, actually, mm-hmm. just as America was getting ready to sort of launch into a time of tremendous change. So, so my mom told me the story much, much later. Um, I think it might have been the day I graduated from college. And that is when I was still an infant in the crib, um, my parents were both standing over me and my mother said to my dad, oh, she's so beautiful. I was their first born child mm-hmm. and they were very young. My mom was 20. My dad was 22. Oh, and um, in a different world. Bless them. <laughs> <laughs> and so my mom said to my dad, oh, she's so she's so beautiful. I can't believe her life will be so different from mine. She's going to go to college. And Mm. my dad, who was an incredible and amazing human being, but a man of his own time, Mm -hmm. uh, said to my mom, what? Why would a girl need to go to college? And my mother responded by (laughs) saying, "Um, if you ever say that to her, I will take her and leave you. Way to go, mom. Yeah. And um, my dad listened and I, <laughs> why I think they told me this on the day of my college graduation or mm. shortly thereafter was that my dad said, I was so glad that I listened to your mother. Oh, sweet. I love that. Yeah. And so that becomes really the framework mm-hmm. of how I grew up is that my parents were working class. Yeah. Um, no one in either side of their families had ever gone to college. Um, my two parents were the first generation to ever graduate from high school. Wow. And so here they were looking ahead at you know, what was the mid-century American dream that mm-hmm. your children will do better than you will. And my mom just naturally took that dream and applied it to her her daughters as well as I, I did eventually have a brother as well and so that meant I grew up in this this household where my mom was sort of a proto-feminist mm-hmm. and she was constantly telling me um, you can do whatever you want whatever you feel you're called to do just keep reading keep going to school and that's what I did And um, there were all kinds of things that entered into that picture Mm -hmm. that limited my abilities because, of course, there were very few female role models of doing things other than the career choices of my mother when I was growing up. Even though she was encouraging, there were just no other women around who were anything other than elementary school teachers and nurses. Mm. Um, And... um, not only were there so that limited cultural role model piece, but there were plenty of people a- along the way who told me no. And I was very hard headed. <laughs> Good. I'm so glad. <laughs> never took never took no for an answer. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I I remember the reason I, I asked that within the gender uh I mean I, I included your gender in that question is because I remember a couple of years ago maybe or a year or two ago um a one of the women you and I both mutually follow that's also uh, I think a professor or public I can't remember who it was it might have been Beth Moore it might have been Cheryl Bridges Johns um I can't remember who it was somebody was like coming under some intense fire as a woman doing theology in the public sphere um and 
and you, I remember seeing your comment to that, your reply to them to something to the degree of, you know, we've been here before as women. Like I was a, I was a woman doing, um, you know, becoming a scholar and doing theology, um, in the, I think you said seventies or maybe the eighties. And, um, and it was just sort of this moment of like solidarity of, um, spiritual mothering that I could look to you guys and just sort of seeing you sort of all <laughs> banding together and saying like, you know, we've experienced this kind of pushback, this kind of misogyny, this kind of um, limitation or, you know, so-called limitation from the powers that be um, before, and it didn't stop us then. And so uh, that was, that was one of the reasons that I wanted to, I, and I love that you told that story about, um, I love that it was told to you post-college graduation, <laughs> that, that that's the first time you're hearing that, you know, for, at least from within your home, uh, that that question was even being asked. Why would you go to college? And then um, you became, your your credentials, I believe, I think it's, you're a historian, right? Um, right. And so where does the public theology, did that also, was that part of your sort of emphasis in your education or has that come about just um, in your life of faith that sort of became a, a larger part of it? Well, it's interesting to me that people throw around that term so much now, public mm -hmm. theology, because it, it, there was very little use of it mm -hmm. um, until I would, I think maybe the last 15 or 20 years, even though we've had, Christians have had people who were public voices before. Sure. Um, you know, and you can think of them. They were often on the cover of Time magazine, someone like Martin Luther King Jr. or Reinhold mm -hmm. Niebuhr. Um, but I don't think that either of them would have said, oh, I am a public theologian. Right. They were simply <laughs> Christians who were doing their work um, beyond the confines of the church. Mm -hmm. Start starts in the church, starts at the seminary, and then moves towards the world, yeah. and and that was the way that you know things were sort of structured. Um, for me, the question of public theology is very much caught up in the issue of gender, mm -hmm. uh, because my very first ever job with my PhD uh, was at an evangelical college in California, and when I went to that school. Um, I was, people have told me this, I, and I've tried to research it and I can't find anything to contradict it yet. I was the very first woman, and this is in 1992, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, I was the very first woman to ever teach in a religious studies department in an evangelical college who wasn't teaching, uh, women's studies or Christian education. And so, you know, who, who basically the first one who didn't stay in their quote lane, their assigned lane, at least that's, that is correct. Yeah. And my job was to teach theology and church history. Mm. And that's what I did. I was very, I, it's funny to say, say this it. now. No, say it. <laughs> I was very young. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was just past 30, you know, mm. when I started this job and, yeah. um, I had gone through school with flying colors and I loved seminary, loved graduate school, was mm. always felt very supported in yeah. all of those spaces by evangelical men in, in particular, mm -hmm. who were very excited um, that I was doing so well in 
in that in those fields. And so I go off to teach at this evangelical college. And my dream is to just sort of be uh, kind of like an evangelical Reinhold Niebuhr, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had a big dream, I like that. big naive yeah. dreams. <laughs> I love and that. So, and so I started and my very first ever day of teaching, I walk in the classroom and, and my job, um, the, the first class I, first actual class I faced was introduction to Christian doctrine. And um, because it was fall, and because I was a new professor, the students had signed up the spring before mm-hmm. to this required class, and there was no name attached to the course. They simply took it because it fit oh. in their schedule. Mm-hmm. And um, over the summer, it was announced, you know, that this there was going to be this new professor, and she was a she, and what right. a big <laughs> deal this was. And so I walk into my very first ever class introduction to Christian doctrine, have my books, you know, my shiny new outfit on, yeah. uh, chalk in my hand. It just seems so earnest. The picture I have in my head is just so earnest and dear. <laughs> that is truly, that is truly a good word to describe me <laughs> in my twenties and yeah. early thirties about evangelicals mm-hmm. um, being very earnest. Yeah. And so I, I look up and after I lay my, my roll book on the, on the um, podium, mm-hmm. I look up and lo and behold, the entire last row of the class were young men who had turned their desks around and were facing the wall. And it was because they didn't believe that a woman had the right to teach a man who was over 13 years old. They, she didn't have a right to teach them doctrine. And, and so I, I, I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And all I could think of was to call the role, you know? And so that's what I did. I just called people's names, you know, here, yeah. mark them present. And I started to lecture. And that was my very first ever college lecture was delivered in a classroom with a group of men who kept their backs to me during the entire lecture. Um, that, so, so when you, when you ask the question about yeah. public theology, I had no intention ever. I mean, I kind of wanted to write so that would catch the attention of the larger world, mm-hmm. but I didn't really have this sort of plan to yeah. unfold and become a public theologian. I was just trying to be, a thinker and a teacher within my community. And at that time, this was the evangelical right. community. And from the first day that I was there, it was clear that they weren't going to really want me. Wow. I, um, that's that mentality and that mindset resonates so much with the way that, that I grew up. Um, you know, if we had space issues in for Sunday school and they had to put a woman where there wasn't a door. So in like a, in the fellowship hall where men could be walking through, uh, it was a problem (laughs) that they would just overhear. Of course they couldn't be in the class, but if, even if they overheard, it was a problem. Um, can you, so is your, is your sort of faith, is your upbringing evangelical? I know that you are a part of, or I hope this is okay to say that you're a part of the Episcopal church now. Um, how did that come to be? If it's not how you were, you were raised. Yeah. 
I was I was raised United Methodist. Okay. And um, well, actually, when I was born, the United Methodist Church didn't exist. <laughs> it existed three years after that because okay. the merger, big merger happened at the beginning of the 60s. Yeah. At, or in the 1960s. And so, um, you know, I was I was just raised in a Methodist church that uh, my uh, great grandparents, I believe it was helped to found in okay. Baltimore city. And my mother was Methodist. My, and my dad actually was raised kind of nothing, mm-hmm. but he became, he got baptized with my sister. Um, Sweet. when she was an infant, um, he was an adult and got baptized in the Methodist church. So that was my, my formative mm-hmm. faith were mm-hmm. the Methodists and pretty liberal, socially pretty liberal while being kind of what I would call fairly traditionalist, um, theologically. Okay. And and so I had that as a background, but then the seventies happened. And when I was a teenager, I was, we had moved from Baltimore to Arizona. Mm -hmm. I was very, very interested in, um, faith and spirituality and personal religious experience. And, uh, you know, there was kind of a revival, um, Mm -hmm. in the seventies and a lot of people, I was at the very end of the baby boom, Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who are sort of in my age cohort, the the youngest boomers, uh, got caught up in this religious revival of the 70s. Mm-hmm. And many, 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 many uh, people that are my friends and people I have known nearly all my life um, became moved from mainline churches into evangelical churches in the 1970s. And mm-hmm. so that's what happened to me, sure. 15 years old, at a Bible church in Scottsdale, Arizona, um, I gave my life to Jesus over a small cracker and a little t- cup of grape juice. And uh, so I think sweet. that's so mainline. <laughs> so you, have a, you have a conversion experience around around the Eucharist. You know? <laughs> it, is. it is. It is. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and I couldn't tell that to my evangelical friends because they sure. wouldn't understand that. And so instead I lied mm. to them. Mm. And told them that it happened around a campfire in somebody's backyard after youth group on a Sunday night. <laughs> Which is so on brand for evangelicalism. <laughs> and I and we were singing, I wish we'd all been ready. Oh um, <laughs> the song about the last days of and the course. rapture. <laughs> and so that was that was the seventies, you know? And I mean it was uh, pass it on and and the spirit of the living God fall mm-hmm. fresh on me. And all these kinds of now, now what are sort of classic choruses of late 20th century evangelicalism. Yeah. So, so that I took that very seriously and I went on to an evangelical college, went on to an evangelical seminary mm-hmm. and very, 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 very much embraced this new identity of being an evangelical. And, um, it didn't. It didn't last long <laughs> past my early 30s because then teaching at that evangelical college, it yeah. became an absolute horror show mm. um, for me as a person. And my my uh, the, the whole college was in an uproar mm. the entire time I was there. And it was very clear that evangelicalism was facing a crisis of identity. And Mm -hmm. I was just one of a myriad of stories like that, Mm -hmm. where people who had been mainliners who became evangelicals in the sort of, and those revivals of the seventies were very radical. Mm 
They were very countercultural. Uh, we were influenced by books not only about the rapture, but things like um, Ron Sider's book. Uh, what was it? Oh my gosh, the title of it escapes me. Uh, but it was on economics. And it basically presented an economics of socialism. Wow. Um, and and everybody read those kinds of books about radical Christianity. Yeah. Uh, Sojourners was born. There was a community called The Other Side. Um, there were all these different, there was a thing in Berkeley. This was all, yeah. I was in California called the Bartimaeus community, which was founded around protesting nuclear uh, bombs and people in the Bartimaeus community used to go and literally just put up camps outside wow. of Liber Livermore Labs in Northern California and get arrested. Um, our heroes were Oscar Romero oh. and uh, Jim Jim Wallace, who was uh -huh. considered at those days to be just kind of this crazy <laughs> radical, and well, he still is, <laughs> even though he's. <laughs> yeah. He's in his early seventies now. Jim, Jim, Jim just keeps going with it, with it all. And may Dorothy we all Day, be so lucky. <laughs> I know that's what I think too. Yeah, yeah. Dorothy Day. So, yeah. So you know, we were. It was a different sort of evangelicalism, especially mm -hmm. in California. It was very tinged by um, the values of the counterculture. It, yeah. We were basically Jesus hippies. Yeah. And what's and so, so funny is what you're describing to me sounds like progressive Christianity to me now, yes. but like, it's like you haven't moved, but the culture moved. And so evangelicalism is just defined entirely differently now. Um, yes. Is that, would that be accurate to say? Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and Kelly, this is, this, um, I didn't realize it when I went back to teach at that evangelical college. Yeah. Um, I had been a student there in the seventies. And so what I had known at that place was all this very radical Christianity. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was a student there, we had had, we had a thing called the alternative dorm and you could live in the alternative dorm. And what you did is you committed yourself to uh, a life of prayer, which was based on a Benedictine rule of life. Uh, we, were all you gave a all of your money to the food service people, uh, but everyone also committed themselves to being vegetarians, and so a certain portion of the money we gave to the the school uh, food service mm -hmm. went to feeding hungry people. Uh, we had we did recycling. Um, everyone had a, a sort of a project that they had to do. We started building an orphanage in Ensenada, Mexico. Wow. I mean, this is. This was the evangelicalism of my college years. Wow. And um, one of the books that was very influential to me, the Ron Sider book, was Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. It just came to Rich me. Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Okay. And, and so that was an incredibly um, influential book. But another one was uh, a, a book called All Were Meant to Be, which was a book written uh, by Letha Scansoni and... Oh, uh, what was her, the other name? Mullencott or Dawson, I think. There was a second author. And it was a book about evangelical feminism. And so my, my friends and I, we read this book and we were so excited. And lo and behold, there was this production of all this evangelical feminist literature mm -hmm. uh, right around 
the early and mid seventies. And so we went to the college administration and mm -hmm. we said, can we start a woman's center? <laughs> this is so, this is, this is like the stuff that your mothers and <laughs> some cases grandmothers did is that this was, this was a very radical thing to do. And the administration told us yes. And what the women's center was, was a drop-in center where you could go and you could read evangelical feminist literature. And we had like popcorn makers and tea. So you could drink like, you know, herb tea and we had beanbag chairs. And it was basically a place for consciousness raising. That's, that's what we did. I love this whole story so much. I also want to say, I wonder how much region has to play into this because so much of this sounds very California also the vegetarianism and the, and the recycling and the tea. And you know, I mean, all of this sounds <laughs> as a Texan, what we would say is, Oh, California. <laughs> yeah. Well, but California in yeah. a wonderful way. I mean, it's not a derogatory thing. It sounds um, like th those morals just never quite made it back to Texas. <laughs> to the south <laughs> well see this is what we didn't realize mm -hmm. um so we're we're out there on the west coast i, I always call this the golden hued evangelicalism of california in the 70s okay it was like we were sitting by the beach and we were doing evangelicalism our way yeah. and and so that that was happening um and then in, in 1980 which was my the beginning of my senior year mm -hmm. in college there was this election. <laughs> there was. And of course, you know, Reagan was Ronald elected Reagan. president. And that was the year that the moral majority came to the fore. And so I can remember being in class. I was a religious studies minor mm -hmm. um, uh, and a history major. So I was sitting in religious studies classes with my friends. And we would be talking about this, you know, Jerry Falwell. And... <sighs> We literally felt like we were talking about the 1950s. Not, no one in that classroom mm -hmm. had any idea that there was a kind of evangelicalism like that was coming out of Lynchburg, Virginia. Mm. Um, and so we were shocked and we thought it was funny. We, we thought we were amused by uh. it. <laughs> and then Ronald Reagan won and the, yeah. these people be, start becoming sort of part of our cultural language. And, um, you know, the eighties unfurled and, and it was during the eighties that I was in graduate school. And then I go back to this college mm. to teach. And this is, this is, this is actually a story that's about way more than me. Mm -hmm. The first week I was at the college, I went and I, after my return, um, I went and I looked for the women's center, women's center. Mm -hmm. because I wanted to find out what they were doing after the guys had turned their chairs on me. You know, I right. wanted to find out what was going on. Yes. And so I, I, I found the room mm -hmm. and the room was full of video games. Oh. And so I started asking people, I said, what happened to the women's center? And, and people were looking at me and they're going, the, the what? The women, the who, wow. what? We, and I said where the beanbag chairs were and we drop in and do consciousness raising and and oh. <laughs> people are looking at me like going, what planet did this woman come from? You know, <laughs> you are exactly right. That story is about like that feels like a microcosm of I mean, if you just look at um, 
like Roe v. Wade, like if you aren't so diligent to, or if, mm-hmm. you know, the community doesn't continue, it just, it can literally die out and go away. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. That is, uh, I mean, it's, I could listen to you talk for four hours about this, by the way. I'm not kidding you. I keep looking at the recording clock like, oh. (laughs) It's it's history. It is. And and what you're saying is exactly right. Because it was was one decade. I graduated in Mm -hmm. 1981 and I returned at the, the beginning of the school year in 1991. Okay. And so one decade later all traces yeah of that radical feminist inclusive diverse mm-hmm. we were talking about gay rights in the mid 1970s um as evangelicals on that campus and um all of it was gone and so so the warning there is is incredibly stark and and it also to me is a story that I never want to stop telling. Yeah. Because the historical truth of the matter is that in the 1970s, evangelicalism had two paths. Mm. And the path that it chose to follow, yeah. that the majority of their leaders, that the majority yeah. that, that won the day, that was that path coming out of Lynchburg, Virginia, that we as students ridiculed. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet both of those options were present in the 1970s. Yeah. And the, the path that one has essentially attempted to wipe from the face of the earth, right. Um, the memory of the other possibility. And when you have two possibilities or more, actually, I don't think there are only two sure. possibilities you know, cause I'm not a dualistic thinker, but there, there were two, there were, I, you know, it was positively biblical. Yeah. It was like, you know, the Deuteronic command <laughs> today. I lay before you two ways, right. You right. know, choose Ugh. well, cause one is a path that leads to life and the other is a path that leads to death. And that was basically what was going on in the 1970s and evangelicalism. We didn't know it. Right. Um, but a tradition chose a path and it was a path that has led to where we are now to where i mean you can draw a direct line you can, you draw, can draw, draw a direct line it's that is um it's a stark warning and i think another i mean it just makes me think just because you haven't have it doesn't mean you're going to get to keep it if you're not that is correct if you're not strategic if you're not diligent if you're not a um, protective of the rights and the freedoms and the conversation and the um the mental space and and Uh, like you said, lack of dualism, it's, you know, we're seeing that with, you know, the Supreme Court approved gay marriage in, in 2015 and, and gay marriage became legal. And there's just this sort of new round, I won't say unprecedented (laughs) because I'm not that myopic and to think that this is, you know, a brand new thing, but um, it's just in so many different spaces where progress has been made um, it's just getting relentlessly attacked by what would, what would, you know, you have the, the other side, the other way um, through evangelicals. And I want to, um, this sort of leads me into this next question. I want to ask you, we're in a, um, 
a day maybe not it's i don't think deconstruction faith evolutions is a new thing of course um but there is sort of new community forming around it, particularly because of social media and and the ability to find other people that aren't directly in your, you know, five mile radius or something. So we're able to connect with each other. Um, The first interaction, I'm going to tell this really quickly. The first interaction I had with you ever on Twitter, I had just left evangelicalism. I'd left my SBC mega church. I was, in the throes of uh, my second major deconstruction and and I tweeted I'm going to I'm going to try the Episcopal Church tomorrow for the first time. And to be honest, I had a lot of hesitation because I grew up with hymns and sort of uh it wasn't high church but it was more formal than my really low church SBC cool karaoke mega church, you know. <laughs> um, and so I was like, oh no, they do robes and oh my goodness. I was so nervous. (laughs) I didn't know anything. I didn't even know what I didn't know. And so I tweeted that and, um, and you responded, I'm not sure how you saw it, but you responded, may the divine attend you. And that felt like a tent peg, like that or tent pole. I'm not sure how you say that felt like something like a a well, I'm going to return to this over and over and over again. And I hadn't, you know, we hadn't, that was our first interaction. I hadn't talked to you before then. And it just felt like a blessing. It felt like a, uh, a holy sort of sacred moment. And in fact, from that organ, from that interaction, um, a, a woman who goes to the church I was visiting, who follows you, her dad is a, a rector that, you know, she saw that cause it showed up in her feed after the, you know, the algorithm, she messaged me and she's like, Hey, are you trying enunciation? I see that you're in Louisville. And I said, yeah. And she was like, I'll save you a seat. She showed me how to do the, uh, you know, this is when we bow. This is when we, (laughs) here's where you're in the service bulletin. Here's where you're in the BCP. Um, If I did not have her those first few weeks, I would never have returned to the Episcopal church because I would have been so lost on how do I do all (laughs) of this? And when do we, do I have to, you know? Um, And it, so it paved the way for me to, and you know, here's the picture of my confirmation right behind me here. Um, I, I feel so this, the Episcopal church was such a safe and soft place to land after coming out of the evangelicalism that the one you're describing, you know, the, of that second path burst <laughs> coming out of, this was in 2019. So we were in the middle of the Trump era, um, in Texas <laughs> And, and, uh, and I thought women should be able to do things. My, I, I thought, you know, queer people belong at the table just like I do. I, uh, anyway, I, it just was such a safe and soft place to land. And so I wanted to tell that story to people who are listening to this just so, um, if you're in a deconstruction moment, just so you know, God is still in the details. Don't disregard social media or Twitter or something as something that God can't, you know, directly uh, impact you with. But I want to ask you, I just want to say, oh my gosh, thank you for telling me that. <laughs> you know, you put, I stay on social media. I, I've had such mixed experiences on social media and I stay yeah. there because I just think, there's 
there's some way that my voice is needed out there in that horrible space (laughs) dumpster fire yes and that that would have happened oh my god i'm so incredibly grateful for you and for you just sharing that story that's an amazing story i think i had told you the first part of that but i don't think i had told you that um that the woman also then connected with me and yeah um and so yeah it was it was just so moving and meaningful to me it you feel very much like and especially now after hearing those stories like a pioneer that sort of just like you were shedding the <laughs> the tall grass out of the way for those of us, you know, coming behind you. And so, um, you do get a little scratched up by the, in that process, you get a little scratched up. You don't get you to play do. with a machete and not get scratched up. <laughs> um, <laughs> I want to ask you about certainty versus curiosity. Um, first of all, as a historian, as somebody who studied the church and faith, what is it about certainty that makes it such a hell of a drug? I mean, it is, it's so scary to walk away from, you know, when you're, when you have your beliefs and you know them and anybody can come at me and, um, Mm -hmm. it is so scary to walk away from it. So is there, um, do you have any insight into that? Yeah, I, you know, I think that at one point in my life, I probably said that I just sort of given up on certainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I have, I have not. I think mm-hmm. that certainty is something that we as human beings do search for. I think it's just part of part of the human condition. Yeah, is that we want to feel uh, like there is something trustworthy that yes. it will We're always anchored be. to something. Yeah, right. That will always be there in this very confusing and chaotic existence that Mm -hmm. we have. And so I I, now I think it's not a problem with certainty, but it's the problem of what are we certain about? Mm. And so so when you are certain about belief systems, uh, I can say 100 percent. Uh, that is the wrong thing to be anchored to <laughs> because belief systems are all human constructed. They're mm. all historically conditional. They are all um, incredibly tenuous um, because you usually you can pull out one piece of them and the whole thing will collapse. Um, and so in the West for the last, you know, three, 500 years, someplace in there, we've decided that we wanted to be, find certainty out of these intellectual constructions of systemic Mm -hmm. ways of shaping the world through what we perceive to be intellectual truth. Right. And that's just ridiculous. That's, that's always going to fail. Um, Some of those systems are better than others. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. And some of them do offer, I think more assurance perhaps, and more, what I would call truthful explanations of the way in which the yeah. universe works, but none of them are things that we can pin absolute certainty on. However, I, yeah, you, what I have f- discovered, and this mm-hmm. is just part of the aging process. And it's, this is one of the best parts of getting older oh is gosh. that I'm actually now more certain about certain about some things than I ever have been before. Mm. Like I am absolutely certain that every human being possesses dignity that needs to be upheld yes yeah i am 
I am absolutely certain that somewhere in the center of the universe is a capacity of love and compassion that is always crying out to us creatively to live closer to that reality. Mm. You know, so, so, so there are things about the moral universe that to me seem clearer that I'm more convicted of and that I'm more certain are true. Yeah. Than ever before. So, so what happens is it's not a getting rid of certainty, but it's a shifting. Yeah. Of certainty and a, a sort of a deepening of certainty, moving it just out of our intellectual capacities towards the sort mm. of connectedness of and our I, entire being. And I wonder, there's also this group identity thing that seems to come with certain types of certainty, <laughs> um, if you will. And so, so in my, you know, I'm certain that, uh, that there's more mystery involved in the things of God, the things of the spirit, um, the, the, you know, motives and, and work of God than I could ever possibly account for. I'm certain that there's mystery, but that doesn't have as, as strong of a tie in a group identity as someone saying, I'm certain that, you know, God is sovereign over everything. And so even the suffering in your life is something that God is going to use for us, you know, that has a real just party line, um, simple answer that I've noticed in some of the more conservative, either evangelical or high control religious environments. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, as you said that, I'm wondering if it's not the certainty that's so scary to walk away from, it's the group identity. It's the belonging that, yeah, uh, that is tethering us there also, because once that, that shared identity is gone uh, or the shared belief is gone, at least, your belonging is subject to, to change as well. Yeah, it, that is true. I yeah. think that you've really identified that correctly. And um, so interesting. It is also it, it also reveals the the failure of pinning um, identity around intellectual certainty. Yeah, because the kind of certainty that you were just talking about, and you said, well, there's no group that's identifiable, you know, with this. The certainty of mystery. It's less, well, I would say, less uh, rigid, less less definable or identifiable to me. Yeah, except for human beings. <laughs> <laughs> you know, being, being human. Um, you know, I mean, that... Someone that, come take my pulse. <laughs> I mean, that's... That that what you've just said about about mystery or what I said about mm-hmm. compassion or yeah. or the the proclamation I made of convictions of dignity. Yes. Um. You know, if there <clears throat> are things as universal truths, those are three of them. Yeah. And and those um, that's good. three things will translate. I think into most human cultures around the world. I don't want to say all because I'm right. a historian and we never say all unless <laughs> right. we have all the evidence. <laughs> you will never have all the evidence. <laughs> That's <right>. uh, <laughs> so we're very modest about our claims. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, when I think about most human cultures and mm-hmm. most of the religious traditions in the broadest sense that, that human beings have constructed, mm-hmm. mystery, compassion, and dignity um, are, are things that do 
do weave through them all. And so, yeah, sure. You're not going to be a reformed Baptist by saying that. Yeah. And if that's the group that you really want to belong to, well, God bless you. Um, but, but, you know, and God yeah. can use strange things. Sure. sure. Um, <laughs> to heal. But, and you know, the in the deconstruction and... community, a lot of people are walking away from That's that. Right. And so you're losing that, that, t- that tether and tie to the larger community as well, which I think can keep people there. It's not necessarily, once the belief starts to waver, but the, the belonging can be even a stronger tie sometimes, don't you think? Yeah, um, it it reminds me a little bit of this. John Wesley said something. Says, I always go back to Wesley. So this was that 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 <laughs> young Methodist that never left. Yeah. Um. You know when John Wesley actually got basically kicked out mm-hmm. of the Church of England, his group, mm-hmm. and he got kicked out because there were certain things that he really came to disagree with and he can he he started constructing christianity yeah. rather differently than the group that had ordained him um you know 18th century uh anglican uh, institutional yeah theology and so wesley comes up with these different ideas and they say no nope, sorry you are not welcome in our churches anymore and so wesley goes out and he preaches in the fields and the the quip that's attributed to him is well, the world is my pulpit. And when I got kicked out of the evangelical college, mm. um, my group, see, I, in fact, I got forced into deconstruction because my group rejected me first. I didn't realize Ooh. that, that I was, that I was questioning them to such an, a degree that I was already deconstructing, ah. but they knew it. And they said, we have to get rid of this because this is a problem. And so they kicked me out. And the day that I was packing up uh, my office and using more swear words than I had ever used in my entire life. Appropriately. (laughs) At the top of my lungs so that all of my colleagues in the religious studies building could hear me. Um, (laughs) I want a t-shirt with your face on it. Um, so I, so I was doing this and I was pulling down these books and, and, um, I pulled down a, a, a book about Wesley, a biography about Wesley. Mm-hmm. And I said, damn it. Okay, John, this is it. The world is my classroom. Mm-hmm. So that's the turn towards public yeah. theology, but it's also exactly what we're talking about now. Yeah. Because when you leave the group, what do you have? you actually have the world oh that's so beautiful and a friend of mine who uh, has been one of my best friends now for gosh more than 30 years and she was with me through this whole process back Mm -hmm. in the college um she's an atheist she has been for a long time and when i walked off of campus that day she looked at me and she said diana welcome to the human race huh Oh, I I love that. And it's big and it's messy and it's diverse and people aren't going to agree with you. And nobody believes, hardly anybody believes all the same stuff. Mm -hmm. And you will find friends and you will find people who, who share your sort of general outlook on the, the world. Mm -hmm. But this is the human race. 
Mm. And that's who we're part of. And when you're when your loyalties are higher towards the Reformed Baptists mm-hmm. than they are toward the human race, come on. Well, see, that becomes a problem. And that is the problem that so many of us are in right now. That's right. right now, you know, people's loyalties are towards capitalism or towards the continuation of fossil fuel economy or towards this particular political party or this set of ideas that they are absolutely convinced that they're right about and that everybody else on the whole planet is wrong about. And and that is not thinking globally. That's right. not thinking about the human race. That's not thinking about Mother Earth. Yeah. All the other things that we have to be thinking about. And for me, the group exit was utterly terrifying. Mm-hmm. But having an atheist standing at the gate, mm. welcoming me to that other community. Yeah. At first was like, oh, you know, Julie, just be quiet. You know, I just don't want to hear it. <laughs> yeah. But it was exactly to that wilderness. what I needed. That was exactly what I needed. In yeah. effect, a little like your friend who met you in the Episcopal Church. Yeah. And welcomed you into yeah. a new language, into a new community, into a new way yes. of practicing your faith with your body. Yes. It was and, so entirely foreign. And right. yet so entirely home right right as soon as I got there and she and she, I mean it was like she was showing me around my new home uh right. and I love that I love that imagery um quickly I, I want to ask really quick if you do you have so I, I was going to in this episode pit curiosity and certainty against one another and I have to change the title of this episode now. Um, <laughs> well, they, they enfold one another. Let's just say that. They do. And you're, but the, I mean, I'm so thrilled to change it. I'm thrilled to have that new framework. I'm thrilled to have that language of saying, you know, it's what you're certain about. That's so wise. Um, but for those who maybe have grown up in that dualism, have grown up in that black and white or sectarian or sort of um, us versus them thinking, but are they, they've, the, the door's been open to them, to this wilderness, to this new space. What, do you have any suggestions or recommendations for cultivating curiosity, um, for cultivating like a, a sort of openness of spirit or mind or heart, spiritual practices, somatic, you know, practices, whatever they may be, contemplative, whatever um, is coming to mind. Hope I'm not putting you on the spot. Um, (laughs) But do you have any recommendations for cultivating curiosity in our faith lives? Um, I do. I actually have a practice that I bring to scripture. Okay. I actually, I I love the Bible more than I ever have, Mm. which always surprises people when they find that out. And I, (laughs) and I read it more. I love that. Than I ever have. I, I could never do that 60-minute quiet time first thing in the morning when I was an evangelical. I, I used to. <laughs> I read Deuteronomy in a morning one time. Oh, my God. I was. I thought, if they're doing one hour, I'm going to do four. <laughs> Good for you. There's the earnest evangelical. There's the thing. earnest evangelical. <laughs> well, I used to cheat. Mm. Um, I, I, I would take my Bible and I would drop it. 
so that it would get all messy looking. <laughs> it's like I was actually like reading it for an hour, and then I would put right into the in it. <laughs> terrible. I was terrible. Excellent. But I wanted to look good to my new community, so sure. I, I messed up my Bible so it would be as messy, and then I put a very nice Bible cozy on it. Yes. Um, <laughs> But uh, I I do read the Bible more and I love it more. And and folks who get my um my newsletter, mm-hmm. I have a Substack newsletter called The Cottage. Yes. Um, every Sunday, it's about the lectionary reading. Yes. You know? So so it's like well, it's fantastic. How, convention- how conventional is that? Um, but this is my practice related to how I read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Is that every single text I read, I ask myself one question: What have I never seen before? Mm. And so I go to the Bible with the wow. assumption that there's going to be something that will surprise me yeah. with every single reading. There is something in that text that I have never seen before. Mm. Because if we believe it's the living word, why would we think we ever had any control over it? Wow. I I can't tell you what, what a um, cold splash of water in the face that is. Because in my, you know, in my evangelical days that, you know, I was just voracious. I read through the Bible four or five times. I mean, just um, in a matter of, you know, a year or two. But I, so I got to this point where I was like, I've read it. (laughs) And I have photographic memory and I can recall and I teach, you know, it's not that I don't love it. It's that like that morning time devotional didn't feel as imperative because it wasn't like I was trying to find out what it was going to say. It was like I was being reminded. Um, and that's so arrogant. I'm not, I'm not, um, boasting about that in any way, but it was a, this is a mind, mindset shift. That's hard to say mindset shift, um, of, but, but there is something new. There is something. And and I have sort of rediscovered, you know, when I read it in a different translation or I, you know, I crack open a commentary or something with it, uh, from Wilda Gaffney or, you know, whomever. And I'm like, Oh my that was there. <laughs> you know, you know? <laughs> it was like, oh my gosh, why didn't I ever see that? You know, I'm 64 years old and I've been reading this darn book, you know, for all those years. I never yeah. stopped going to church. And it's like every, it, there, it, it always, there is always a surprise. And, and that's the curiosity question. And my students back at the evangelical college, the, mm-hmm. the four years I was there, I'm friends with many of them still. Mm. Um, and several of them wound up being world-class um, theologians. Reggie mm. Williams, who's an African-American theologian mm-hmm. at McCormick. Uh, Jen Harvey, who is a leader in the LGBTQ community. Yes. Teaches uh, gender sexuality theology at Drake University and also teaches uh, racism. Mm. Um so, you know, so there, so there are some people and, and many other people that I have sure. known to wound up being amazing pastors and, and writers. Um, so, so these were students at that evangelical college and they all have come back to me and told me that there was this one question that I would ask um, that changed their lives. Mm. And that was the question of whenever I had them read a text, whether it was the Bible itself or whether it was Augustine or Luther or, um, uh, Wesley or whoever, mm-hmm. very standard stuff. My my readings for my classes were terribly conventional <laughs> um, back in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And 
but I would, the question was always, and they always, they became, they, they became attuned to it. What surprised you Mm. in this reading? What surprised you? And that's the curiosity question. And so when they, when they came into class and they had even read something just say by Billy Graham, because mm-hmm. um, I would have them read sermons by Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, what surprised you mm. about this sermon? And whatever it was that surprised them, that was the question that we would pursue for the next 90 minutes or however long that particular class period was. And so that's the question of my lifetime. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Um, Gosh, that was such a riveting conversation. As I said in the episode, I could have talked to her for hours. My thanks again to Dr. Diana Butler-Bass for joining me today. You can find her on Twitter at Diana Butler-Bass, on her website at dianabutlerbass.com, and you can sign up for her weekly newsletter that she mentioned um, where she writes about the week's lectionary texts. It's fantastic. Um, You can head over to dianabutlerbass.substack.com. Of course, I will link to all of these in the show notes as well. Join me next week as we continue to make space for, honor, and name what matters. And now, according to our little tradition, as we close out, the benediction I will be um, I will be leading us in is one that I wrote for the study guide. Um, I was asked to write by author and um, uh, also public theologian Kate Boyd. Uh, she released a book in April called "An Untidy Faith." For those of you who are Patreon members, you'll remember. Um, that Kate joined us for a uh, bonus episode where we discussed um, the Bible and um, just how we interpret it and how our relationships with it have changed. Kate asked me to write the study guide for her book, and in it I included a blessing and a benediction, and so that is the benediction I'll be reading and praying over us now. Let's pray. May your belovedness be so settled in your bones and body that you never fear when more questions arise in the future. May your vision of God and Christianity be so solidly fixed on the person of Jesus Christ that you never forget that the word of God is a person, not a book. May you find ways to love those who have come to different conclusions about God, the Bible, the church, culture wars, and politics, but who remain your neighbors. May you be released from the capitalist version of Christianity that prioritizes and platforms performance and productivity. Instead, may you heed the invitation that Jesus repeats throughout his ministry. Come to him, find rest, be filled with good things, be made whole, and find God. May you find ways to participate in the opposition dismantling and destruction of oppressive systems of injustice, patriarchy, white and Western supremacy, poverty, religious tyranny, war, ableism, and queerphobia. And may the love of God for you empower you for neighbor love, self-love, and enemy love. May you remember the words of Bishop Michael Curry, if it's not about love, then it's not about God. Amen. Amen.